Focus on Life. It's Sunday evening and you're listening to Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Jeff Lucas. It's a word we don't like and we generally try to deny that it's going to happen to us. I'm talking about death. It was Woody Allen who said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Perhaps we can all agree. Over the last 18 months, we've been bombarded with statistics which have included numbers of people dying from this wretched COVID virus. Death edges closer to us as we get older, but it feels like it's rudely barged into all of our lives in this recent season. Surely that's a time for us who follow Jesus to celebrate the truth that not only has he conquered the power of death, but a glorious future is ahead. Eternity. That's what we're talking about here on Lucas on Life. From here to eternity. When I was a bright young Christian thing, heaven was a hot topic, as were all things related to the second coming of Jesus. We talked breathlessly about the signs of the times and devoured books that yelled that the end of the world was very nigh, most of them written by Americans who claimed uncanny insight into the future. We were hopeful and nervous in turn keen to meet Jesus and yet fretful about the possibility that everything on earth might be wrapped up prior to us being married and having sex. We clutched prophetic charts printed in lurid Gothic lettering that wrongly turned the book of Revelation into a timeline. We speculated about the identity of an alleged antichrist figure. Lenin, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin and Henry Kissinger were considered as possible candidates for beasthood as we played the popular eschatological game named that Antichrist. Even Bob Dylan was briefly considered for the role until he messed up the theory by announcing himself to be Christian. The second coming was like a real-life unfolding drama with a cast of characters that kept changing. The books on the second coming kept coming back too, reprinted in multiple editions with some cast members' names deleted and with a few additions added to the beastly list. We wondered what heaven would be like and struggled with the clutter of unbiblical notions of fluffy pink clouds and harp-holding angels. I was privately concerned about boredom because heaven sounded alarmingly like an endless prayer meeting. During one stunningly numbing prayer service when we sang the same song 27 times and sensed that watching angels were tearing their flowing blonde hair out, the worship leader informed us that heaven was going to be just like this, only longer. Yikes. Sometimes the neurosis turned into full-blown madness when an alleged NASA scientist called Edgar Wisnat published 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988, calling the world to be expectant, faithful and ready. He sold 4 million copies. When our Lord didn't oblige by returning in 1988, the hapless Edgar did a comeback himself with a revised prediction that it would all happen in 1989, perhaps suggesting 89 reasons for his theory, one of which might have been that Jesus didn't show in 1988. Incredibly, some had their pets put down in anticipation, wanting to spare their spaniels and tortoises the rigours of the tribulation, and many ran up huge credit card bills, believing that they wouldn't be around to pay them, a highly dubious legacy. Of course, Jesus didn't return in 1989 either. I expect you know that. I don't know what Ed did with the rest of his life. He was last heard of in Hawaii, perhaps being faithfully expectant and ready on a beach. 
Our preoccupation with the end times prompted some silliness, but I've wondered if the pendulum that so often swings in the church has yet swung again, and we have forgotten our future. Is it possible that we all know full well that the kingdom is now, but the fact that it is not yet has slipped our minds? Have we lost our grip on our eternal hope and future? Recently, I had to remind myself of the Christian hope in a moment of crisis that I didn't anticipate. I was watching a film that included a scene where a father and son were enjoying each other's company, and despite my own father having died some years ago, I was mugged by a crushing grief and felt the sharp sting of death. I suddenly missed my dad in an unbearable sadness that quite literally took my breath away. For some moments, I felt paralysed by a sad claustrophobia. I felt trapped, sealed up in the now, where my dad is not, quite unable to go back to then, where he used to be, alive and well. Without the gospel, without the gospel hope and truth, he is gone forever, never to be seen or heard of again. Tears running down my face, I told myself that there will be a reunion. I confess that for some seconds, it felt like pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking, a flimsy notion to cling to for comfort. But I affirmed my hope of heaven and my conviction that one day I will meet Jesus face to face when heaven finally comes down to earth, the new Jerusalem. I'm convinced that we need to talk far more about the spectacular future that is ahead, especially in this season where, as I've said, death has rudely intruded into so many lives. And of this, concerning the future, of this I'm persuaded. There will be a moment when I bump into a grinning chap with a Cockney accent and the hugs and the laughter and the backslapping will begin. There'll be memories recalled and celebrated, perhaps, and lessons learned along the way, shared in that day of reunion. Who knows? Perhaps I'll introduce him to you, and we'll have a cup of tea, for surely heaven wouldn't be heaven without cups of tea. Perhaps he'll tell you his story. He always loved to talk, and surely even death hasn't changed that. I'll look forward to it. You can call him Stan. I'll call him Dad in eternity. I knew that they knew by the way that they tried to stifle their grins and whispered behind cupped hands into each other's ears. Undertakers are not supposed to smile, even furtively, but they just couldn't resist it. They knew that the young minister, me, was a funereal virgin. This was my very first time. I'd never seen a corpse before, and I was scared to death. I'd spent a long, sleepless night tossing and turning and dreaming brief dreams about coffins and corpses before waking up for the umpteenth time, my forehead beaded with sweat. I was scared of my fear. Would I faint at the sight of the body? I knew that my very first funeral was going to feature an open-top coffin, and so the body would not be hidden away safe and sound in its brass-handled container. No, this first funeral was going to include a very open casket, one containing one very dead person. I was mortified. I knocked at the door of the house where the funeral party was being held, half expecting the deceased to answer the door. Taking a big deep breath, I jumped into the hallway, alarming the mourners, who obviously thought that the minister was either armed and dangerous or had been watching too many James Bond movies. The coffin had still not arrived, and so my anxious entrance was in vain. 
I smiled lamely and said something that I hoped sounded vaguely sensible. The funeral director smiled back. At last, his colleagues arrived with the dearly departed. I thought that I was going to scream as they set the trestles up and placed the coffin upon them, right next to the sausage rolls and gherkins, which had been provided for the post-burial bash. Slowly, so slowly, they unscrewed the lid, and I decided to take microscopic interest in one of the gherkins as they inched the lid open. Gherkin in hand, I turned slowly to view the corpse, and immediately knew that everything was going to be all right. His face was a chalky, powdery white, his eyes clamped tight shut in the long sleep of death, his hands folded together across his chest, prayer-like, a fitting final posture for this belated man of God. The relatives came in, fussed around and picked up thin slices of pizza and told each other how very nice he looked, how very lifelike he looked. And then they asked me for a photograph. I assumed that they just wanted a snap of me as the officiating minister at the funeral, so I swallowed the last piece of gherkin, with which I'd become so well acquainted. But I was mistaken. They wanted me to be in a photograph together with the departed brother. I couldn't believe it at first. Surely not. I mean, how was such a photograph to be taken? Should I get down beside the coffin and nestle in closely, head to head, as if the deceased and I were out for a night on the town together? Should I put a friendly arm around the coffin head? And should I smile for the camera? After all, my fellow photographic model was... um dead. They said that a smile would be fine as the dearly departed had indeed gone elsewhere and now was with Jesus. So why not smile, they reasoned. I agreed, put my arm around the coffin as if the deceased and I were posing for a post-football match snapshot and did my best to look happy. I hadn't planned on getting that close to the body. Perhaps it was morbid fascination, but I studied the texture and the lines of his face closely. The stillness, the utter absence of life was fascinating to behold. The flashbulb did its work, and minutes later, I was being shown a Polaroid snapshot of myself and a very cold, dead person. I remarked that it was a good photo, but inwardly wanted to say, he doesn't look well, does he? It didn't seem appropriate. It was time to go to the cemetery, so they screwed the coffin lid on again, and we began our slow drive to the leafy park. But there, again, another unusual experience awaited me because this family was determined to bury their dead, literally. I'd expected to do the ashes to ashes bit and then walk away and allow the gravediggers to do their work after the mourners had left. But this family had a tradition of acting as gravediggers themselves. The women sang beautiful spirituals, their lilting voices a mixture of lament and celebration as they sang about the sweet by and by. And as they harmonised together, the men took up shovels and spades and filled the grave with earth. Great clods of rain-soaked earth thudded onto the coffin lid, and within minutes the wooden casket had disappeared from view. Still they sang on, until the grave was quite filled, and a mound of earth rose above ground and the lilies had been arranged delicately. Then, and only then, did any mourner attempt to leave. Back at the wake there was laughter and tears and eating and drinking. In a quieter moment, I wondered about the way these people treated death, the open coffin and the photograph, which would be sent to relatives overseas and the assistance from the family that they literally buried their dead. Did they do this because they were unafraid to stare death in the face? Did it help their mourning to make sure that any sense of unreality was shredded by the brutality of deadness? Our culture so often disguises death, 
To speak of it is seen by most of us as morbid. We hide our undertaker's shops down back streets and use just about any turn of phrase as a cosmetic to cover up the harsh reality. A person is deceased, departed, gone on before, on the other side, anything but dead. My first funeral taught me far more than I'd expected. I had bumped into a group of Christians who were able to stare down the last enemy, death itself. Their confidence was not based in some sentimental, it'll all be all right on the night view of heaven, but anchored in the sure hope that comes from the Jesus who has wrestled death and won the fight for all of us who will believe. Death is very dead. As we've been talking about death and eternity tonight, I'm reminded that there are some Christians who almost seem to take an unrealistic approach to death as if it's just about taking a journey from this life to eternity. Death carries grief. It still has a sense of pain about it. The Bible describes it as the last enemy. And so when we lose someone that we love, of course, it's appropriate to feel sadness and grief. We know if they follow Christ that they are with him. It's just that they're not with us. It may be that you'd like to talk to somebody about the issues that we've been reflecting on in tonight's programme. You can call the Premier Lifeline on 0300 0101. That's 0300 0101. If you are one of the many who is currently navigating the shadowy hallway of grief, may you know God's strength, comfort and even surprising joy during this time of sadness. Thanks so much for joining me. See you next week. Lucas on Life.